Okay, take your Bible now as we uh, prepare to look at a variety of passages. This being our Bible question and answer, we will not be in one particular passage, so you'll need to sort of um, jump around. We'll turn to some passages, others I may just mention, and you can uh, jot down a note if you want to pursue something further. Uh, But we'll just try to cover the variety of topics that have been uh, asked about in the really, really good questions. And I really appreciate those of you every month who turn in questions because they're almost always well thought out and and good issues to to grapple with. So first question says this, uh, what is the place for self-esteem? Is it pride? Should people have a high self-esteem? Please comment. It's a very good question, very relevant question. Uh, because, as you know, this is a topic that is, uh, it's a phrase, an expression that's just very common in society, especially if you read or run in counseling circles. You hear a lot about that. Educational circles, there's a lot of talk about self-esteem, the importance of self-esteem, the importance of self-esteem, etc. And so Christians sometimes just adopt these things without really taking the time to think through them biblically. So I appreciate the fact that someone would want to try to wrestle through what is a biblical view of self-esteem. Of course, one of the problems we have is that the phrase doesn't occur in the Bible. So it's not as easy as just looking up in a concordance self-esteem and then you find out what the Bible says about self-esteem. But it is interesting to know that the Bible has a lot to say about self. And in fact, one of the most important verses or Uh, exhortations regarding self came from the Lord Jesus himself when he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So that should at least be a hint to us. Now, I'm not suggesting, I'm not sure you could defend the idea that you ought to have a low self-esteem, but the answer is not to have a high self-esteem. Actually, I think the more biblical answer is that we already are too preoccupied with self, either on the good side or the bad side. We either think too highly of ourselves. Romans 12.3, Paul says, don't think, I'm writing to you to not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. So that is one tendency. But the other tendency is that we could just be so focused on self that we, uh, you know, that we just go around putting ourselves down. Well, that can be just as bad as a wrong high self-esteem. So the better, I think the more biblical approach, and this isn't natural for any of us, is try to forget about self. Self is our problem. And so rather than focusing on self, the scripture continually tells us, Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. faith, So our focus should be on the Lord Jesus and our focus should be on others. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, don't, uh, you know, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than or more important than himself. So I think the biblical response to self-esteem is not build up your self-esteem or put down your self-esteem, but maybe just kind of forget about self-esteem and think about Christ and focus on him and think about others, and that's really more the biblical approach. So uh, I don't know if that helps what you're wrestling through, but... Uh, Can self-esteem be pride? Absolutely. Uh, But not just a high self-esteem is not the only wrong kind of focus on self. So can a type of focus on self that goes around putting yourself down all the time because it just still shows a focus on self. 
All right, next question says this. Pastor Brian, often we hear people say that the United States is not included in end times prophecy. Uh, Isn't it possible that the U.S. could possibly be represented in the ten kings or kingdoms we read about in Daniel and Revelation? Couldn't it be possible that the U.S. is representative of the Roman Empire since we are an offshoot? Would appreciate your comments on this. And I really don't have much to add because I think you're right on. I don't remember who handed me this question, but I think uh, you've done a good job wrestling through that. And I've for years said that, that just because we don't see the United States specifically spoken of in prophecy doesn't mean that we conclude, which is what a lot of people conclude, well, the U.S. is going to, you know, before the end times come about, the U.S. is going to be totally decimated and destroyed and not even a player on the world, you know, stage. Well, you can't assume that because you need to remember that the U.S. is an offshoot or an, uh, you know, an offshoot or an outgrowth of England. We, we rebelled against England and sort of broke off on our own. Uh, and you've got a lot of issues there to wrestle through as a Christian. A lot of Americans don't think about that because we're American. But as a Christian, it's something you need to think through. Um, and so it is very possible that God still sees us as a part of the European connection. So uh, can we say that definitively? No, but I think your suggestion is very plausible that uh, just because the, the west, west of Europe, the United States, is not mentioned specifically prophecy doesn't mean that, that, that the U.S. is absent from prophecy because clearly, or at least in my opinion, um, there is the uh, indication that there will be the revived Roman Empire, ten-nation confederation, that dominates the end times, and it's very possible, very likely, the United States could be or would be a part of that. All right, next question says this, uh, how do we reconcile the life of King Saul in the Old Testament and his being filled with the Spirit and then his disobedience and his rejection from God? How do we reconcile all of that with the fact that salvation is not temporal? It seems as if King Saul was saved and then lost that? Or was God using the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose? And uh, I think your last part of your question is coming closer to the answer to your question. Um, I personally do believe that King Saul was a believer. You have a specific statement in Samuel that the Lord gave him a new heart. It appears to be a statement of the new birth. So the Lord gave him a new heart. The Lord gave him his spirit to rule over his people Israel. But when Saul sinned, and not just one time, but repeatedly sinned, eventually God withdrew his spirit from Saul. But here's where you need to be careful. In the first part of your question, you are almost assuming that because God withdrew his spirit from Saul, that he lost his salvation. When It seems that in the Old Testament, you know this from reading the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit would come upon people for specific purposes. It's the change that Jesus talks about in John 14 when he says to his disciples, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He has been with you, John 14, 17, but he shall be in you. In other words, Jesus announced a change. The Holy Spirit has been with you. He was with Old Testament believers. It's not accurate to say that the Holy Spirit wasn't with Old Testament believers. He was, but Jesus was announcing something new in John 14, 17, and that is when the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost, after the work, the finished work of Christ, the Holy Spirit would come in a new role to permanently indwell believers. 
so that we don't have to pray what David prayed in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And why did David pray that? Because he saw what happened to his predecessor, Saul. When Saul sinned, the Lord did take the Holy Spirit from Saul. So David sinned grievously, and David therefore was concerned, and rightly so, are you going to take the Holy Spirit from me? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But you shouldn't assume that taking the Holy Spirit is equivalent to or equal to a loss of salvation. It was simply a loss of anointing for the purpose of ruling over Israel. So as you, answer, as you ask your question, it seems as if King Saul was saved, then lost that. I don't agree that he lost that. Or was God using the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose? I would say yes. He was using the Holy Spirit in Saul's life to get, empower him to be king over Israel. But when Saul continually rebelled, God withdrew his Holy Spirit. But that does not automatically uh, assume or automatically affirm that Saul lost his salvation. So I don't believe he did. I don't think you have any issue there or contradiction that you have to, have to wrestle through, other than the distinction between the Old Testament economy, where the Holy Spirit could come and go, and the New Testament, where we are taught we are permanently sealed, permanently indwelled. We don't have to pray, don't take your spirit from me. All right, next question says this, what comes first? This is really a good question. What comes first? Does one's theology inform his exegesis or does exegesis inform theology? Now, in case you're not familiar with the terms, of course, theology is just your doctrine, your belief, what you hold to. Exegesis is the practice of going to Scripture and drawing out of it the meaning of passage after passage. So exegesis is almost equivalent to exposition. So in other words, I, I practice expository preaching. We just go through a book, you know, verse by verse, week after week, doing exegesis, drawing out the meaning of a passage. So the question is, does one's theology, does your theology inform your exegesis? In other words, I have these truths that I hold on to, so therefore, this passage that I'm wrestling with is informed by my theology and guided by my theology. Or does your exegesis inform your theology? In other words, here's the question, must not our exegesis be informed by something? How can anyone be a pure exegete? A very good question, a great issue to wrestle through, and I would agree with you what you seem to be implying, that it is impossible for us to keep our theology out of our exegesis. But I would suggest to you that it is a good practice to try to keep your theology out of your exegesis in this sense, that your theology should be built by your exegesis. In other words, we should go to the Scripture and mine out from Scripture what it teaches. So as you go through Scripture and study it, what does it teach about the Holy Spirit? We were just talking about the Holy Spirit. What does Scripture teach about salvation? What does Scripture teach about sin? What is scri- and then as we learn what Scripture teaches, we form a theology. Now, it is true, as you form your theology, as time goes on, if you have formed your theology from exegesis and you have a fairly accurate theology, then certainly your theology will inform your exegesis. 
because you will come to a passage on occasion, uh, for example, like Hebrews 6.4, it's impossible for those who are enlightened, taste of the heavenly gift, if they fall away to new, renew them to repentance. And you say, okay, my theology, and I've studied this for years, I know theologically that it's impossible to lose your salvation. So that is informing my exegesis of Hebrews 6.4 that the writer is not talking about losing your salvation. So yes, at that point, your theology would sort of weigh in or affect your view of that verse. But where we need to be careful is our theology may not be right. So in other words, it's easy to have a theology and say, well, that verse can't be saying that because I know that this is the truth. Well, what if what you're holding to is not the truth? We always have to be willing to let our views be affected by our exegesis. So we always need to do the hard work. Now, if your exegesis is leading you a path down a path that contradicts a dozen other verses, you should have reason for pause to say, uh, may, I, I think I'm not doing something well with my exegesis here because I'm contradicting all these very clear verses elsewhere in Scripture. But you're right. There is a, a man by the name of Osborne. Grant Osborne has written a really helpful book on hermeneutics, which is Bible interpretation. And his title of the book is uh, called The Hermeneutical Spiral. And he calls it that by design because he, he acknowledges that Hermeneutics is a spiral. That is, we try to start with exegesis, and the more we build up our exegesis and build up our theology, then that informs our exegesis. Then our exegesis further informs our theology. So it is a spiral, not in a bad sense of that term. So we all have to acknowledge that our theology does inform our exegesis, uh, but I do think it is great practice when you come to a passage of Scripture to try to in a sense, block everything else out and let the passage speak. Don't, don't contort the passage according to preconceived ideas or assumptions. Let the passage speak. And then as you let it speak and you, you start going down a track, again, if it's obvious that it's contradicting so much uh, other scripture, you say, then I'm not seeing something right. But if you come to a passage and you're just going to dump your theology into it, you're not really doing exegesis. You're not letting the passage speak. You're just taking your theology and making that verse fit your already uh, formulated theology. So in answer to your question, what comes first? Idealistically, I believe exegesis should come first. It should inform your theology. But if you've done exegesis well, extensively over a long period of time and built a solid theology, then certainly your theology is going to inform your exegesis. So really good question. All right, uh, next question. What does Christ mean when he refers to himself as the Son of Man? Uh, there are two answers to this question. Uh, one is the phrase Son of Man, uh, like the phrase Son of God, is a title. The, the, the phrase the Son of God is a title of deity. The phrase the Son of Man is a title of humanity. So that's one of the issues that Jesus was emphasizing when he called himself the Son of Man. By the way, that was his favorite title for himself. He referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other way. It was clearly his favorite title for himself. But I don't think it was only because he was emphasizing his humanity, though that is certainly one aspect. Jesus wanted to emphasize he was fully and truly human. Why would he want to emphasize that so much? Because you know what, gang? We don't really accept that. I mean, how many times have you said, oh, of course Jesus did that, but he was God. You don't see, you see, you and I would just sort of dismiss his humanity. Of course he never sinned. He was God. Of course, rather than 
what the New Testament tells us to do. Look at him as our human example. So to counter that, Jesus regularly referred to himself as the Son of Man. I am human. I am fully and truly human, living as a man, showing the pattern of how we ought to live as men and women. So that's one of the reasons. But the other reason is because the phrase Son of Man, and you can do just a little concordance search, comes out of especially Daniel 7, but out of the Psalms, and it's a messianic title. It's the title of the Messiah. It's one of the... um, it's one of the very clear messianic titles out of Hebrew Scripture. So Jesus was reaching back and using a title that all the Jewish people should have known was a reference to the Messiah. So it was a way for him to state two things, to call himself the Son of Man. I am truly and fully human, and I am the promised Messiah. So those are the two reasons why and what he's referring to when he calls himself the Son of Man. The next question says this, uh, if we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, how were people prior to Christ saved with no Christ yet to believe in? And the answer is very simply this, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the Old Testament saints were saved by grace alone, through faith alone. The object of their faith was not a Messiah who had come and who had died and who had been raised from the dead. But Genesis 15, 6 is probably the key salvific verse in the Old Testament. It says, And Abraham believed in Yahweh, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that in Romans. Paul quotes that in Galatians. James quotes that in his letter. Because it is so significant. The New Testament writers want us to understand that salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. The only difference is the object of salvation. For us today, for anyone today, the object of faith has to be Christ. The New Testament could not be any clearer on on that subject. It has to be in Christ. But in the Old Testament, before Christ came, the object of faith was the true God. Not the false gods of the nations, but the true God, the God of Israel. And Abraham believed in Yahweh, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Genesis 15, 6 is a verse you ought to know. The New Testament writers obviously think it's a key one because it's quoted so often, and it shows salvation has always been, will always be by grace alone, through faith alone. Uh, And it, it totally destroys a common belief among even many Christians that Old Testament saints were saved by keeping the law and New Testament saints are saved by grace through faith. No, never has been that way. Uh, It's never been salvation by works of the law, salvation by faith. It's always by grace through faith. All right, the next question uh, is, uh, let's turn to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 12. This is uh, every now and then someone asks this question because when you run into this verse, it is somewhat startling especially when you compare it with Luke's uh, parallel account. So Matthew 11, verse 12, Jesus says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now the question that the person is asking is just basically, what does this mean? I mean, Here's the question. Matthew eleven twelve has been interpreted a few different ways by my reading of commentaries. As I understand, the word for violence used is used nowhere else in Scripture. 
And the word for force is used nowhere but in Luke 16, 16. That's a good observation because in Luke 16, the parallel passage, the wording is way different. And listen to Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. So in Matthew's account, the wording is the violent take it by force. In Luke's account, he says the kingdom is preached and everyone is pressing into it. So the question is, can you comment on your view of this passage in particular, whether violent and men, and concludes both those seeking to enter the kingdom and those seeking to expand it, and the implications on spiritual warfare? An excellent question, and it is a difficult issue. Let me see if I, I just give you my perspective of it. In Matthew, what Jesus is warning about is very similar to in Matthew 7 where he said, hard is the way, narrows the gate, refined is the way to life. And one of the reasons why, he says right there in Matthew 7, is because there are so many false prophets. And those false prophets lead you the wrong direction. So it's hard to find the path of life because you have so many religious teachers and religious groups who say, this is the way, this is the way. So which is the way? So it's very narrow, very confined. In a similar way, Jesus is continuing on that theme here in Matthew where he says, from the days of John until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That is, the, the way into the kingdom was so overtaken by, uh, usurped by the leaders of Israel who were violent people. We've seen that in recent weeks as we've seen the extent to which they were willing to go to kill Jesus. So they took, basically took control of the religious scene, which totally confused people as to how do you find the right path. So the violent take it by force, which then makes sense of what is stated over in Luke 16, where it says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. So Jesus, John came preaching the kingdom. Jesus came preaching. And because it's so hard to get in because of the usurping of the false religious leaders of Israel, and they're taking it by force, everyone is pressing into it. In other words, you have to press into it. It's hard to get into the kingdom. Not, he's not talking about works here, like you've got to really work hard, but it's hard because it's so confusing. And there are so many false messages and false paths because the violent have taken it by force. They've taken over. It's, look, it's, it's, it's very much like what has happened with Christianity today. Would you, I mean, surely you would acknowledge that most of Christianity, sadly, points people the wrong direction. Sure it does. Most Christianity. You go into... You know, you just take a number, you know, I don't know what the number would be. Six out of ten, eight out of ten churches that you could go to anywhere around the world would not give you a clear path of salvation. No. So it's hard to get into the kingdom because there are all these mixed messages, all these errors. Well, it was no different in the first century. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. John did, and they said, listen, it's not the way your leaders are telling you. That's not the path that's going to lead you to damnation. So the violent take it by force. They usurp it, and therefore people are having to press to get into it. They're going to have to, as Jesus said, enter in at the narrow gate. It's not easy to get in. So uh, you did a good job, whoever asked this question, of bringing together Matthew 11 and Luke 16 because they do go together. It's just that their wording changes significantly, even though they're parallel passages. But the combined verses give the picture, I think, of what Jesus is saying. Our next question says this. How did Joseph, this is from this morning's text, 
How did Joseph and Nicodemus roll such a heavy rock to cover the tomb? Were others involved? Well, we don't know for sure. It's very possible that others were involved, but uh, I'm, I'm by no means an expert on archaeology, but I have been to Israel enough times and studied a, a lot of the history and archaeology and issues around uh, those types of topics. And uh, one of the things that we do know is that when tombs were carved and stones were put in place, that often they were put in place, this is, you know, just wisdom, you put it on the uphill side with something holding it, so if you want to put it in place, you simply move that out so it can roll down into place. So it, 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 depending on how the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was constructed, it may not have been very difficult to get the rock in place. Because if you could have just maneuvered enough to get the wedge out to let it roll into place, then it's there. The problem, of course, would have been getting this to, this, the rock out away from the tomb, which is interesting when you study the resurrection accounts, and we'll get into this as we move into Mark 16. But when John describes the, the position of the stone after it had been rolled away, he uses the Greek word iro, which can mean and often means, usually means, sort of to, to pick up, move away. So it's not just that the stone was rolled away a little bit so Jesus could squeeze out. Of course, he didn't need to squeeze out. The stone was rolled away so people could see in. But the stone was, was like, almost like up the hill, if you will. It was moved so far out of the way. So that was really the issue, not getting the heavy rock in place to cover the tomb but the trying to get it away, which, of course, is what the women were wondering as they were going to the tomb that morning. What are we going to do about the stone? We don't have any idea how we're going to be able to get to his body to anoint it. All right, next question says this. Um, uh, could you help us know what to say to people who choose to constantly use our Lord's name as just a way to begin many sentences and say his name with such disrespect? Um, I wish I could. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I think all of us have people in our lives like this, neighbors, family members, friends. I mean, you know, one approach that a lot of Christians take is they just ask. They just say, could you please not use the Lord's name in vain? And sometimes unbelievers will respect that. Sometimes they won't. So that's one option. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is, um, is expecting unregenerate people not to sin. I mean, sinners are going to sin, so it's hard to know how much to, to deal with that type of issue because it's almost like you're trying to clean up the fishbowl instead of fishing for fish. You know, we're fishers of men not cleaning up the fishbowl. So, but again, it's not wrong if that's offensive to you, which of course it is to all of us as believers, to hear our Lord's name used in vain. You can request that or ask that, but uh, there certainly is no silver bullet to guarantee that sinners around us are going to stop sinning and specifically even sinning in the area of what they say with our Lord's precious name. So I know a lot, of, probably most Christians have wrestled with that, wondering, Lord, what do you want me to do about it? Every time around this, around this uncle or this cousin or neighbor, they're swearing like crazy and using the Lord's name in vain. Should I say something? What do I say? We've all probably wrestled with that. All right, next question says this. Could you please explain why God chooses to harden hearts? Uh, Follow-up, was Her Pharaoh's heart hardened just so we could learn the power of God? And I would say, no, not just so we could learn the power of God. But clearly in the text it is stated that that was one of the reasons. But it's important, since it's obvious you're wrestling with this in relation to Pharaoh, it's very important to go back and read the Pharaoh story closely 
Because if you will read it closely, you will notice that at least twice, and I think three times, I, would, I didn't read it this afternoon, I could have gone back and read it, but at least twice, if not three times, the text very explicitly states, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then as the story unfolds, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So it's very much like what you read in the New Testament. For example, in John 12, where it says, Jesus, although he had done so many signs, they would not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which is, Lord, who has believed our report, to whom in the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe. So John 12, 37 to 39, look at it closely. They would not believe, and as a result, judicial hardening, they could not believe. So be very careful in this area to not draw the conclusion that somehow, if you're, if you're going to draw this conclusion, you, you've got to be able to try to defend it biblically, which I'm not convinced you can do, that God is just somehow random. I, you know, I think I'll harden that guy's heart. I think I'll harden that. You know, I think I'll, no. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in the same way, the people of Jerusalem, they saw the miracles, they saw the miracles, they hardened their heart. Then they got to the point they would not believe to where they could not believe. Ephesians 4 talks about the same thing. It says, it it talks about unbelievers, the sort of the steps they go through. And it says eventually, who being past feeling have been given over. Romans 1, the same thing. Because they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over. So most of the time, most of the time, if not all the time, I don't know that I could state all the time. I'd have to do more thorough study. But most of the time, the hardening of the heart is a response from God to man hardening his heart. And in Pharaoh's case, it is explicitly stated in the text multiple times. And then the question says, it feels like if Pharaoh's heart had not been hardened, that the whole Bible would have gone in a different direction. You are right, because if Pharaoh hadn't hardened his heart, and then God eventually said, it's, you know what, it's past the point of no return. I'm going to harden his heart. Of course, that led to the Exodus, which is the sort of the cross of the Old Testament. It's the key salvific event of the entire Old Testament. So you're right. If Pharaoh hadn't hardened his heart or God hadn't hardened Pharaoh's heart, then the whole Bible would have gone in a different direction because that is the central sort of the central story of the, the Old Testament, the exodus and God's salvation of his people out of, out of uh, Egypt. All right, next question says, is cremation biblical? What is the biblical support for inhumation versus cremation in light of man being made in the image of God? What is the purpose of the physical body? Several questions there, so maybe just some general comments. Uh, maybe a, a good place to start is, I, because I've seen this in some little pamphlets, uh, I do not believe you can defend the view, which some Christians try to assert, that cremation is unbiblical. Because the biblical passages that I've always seen used to state that are passages that talk of, where God talks about uh, his people Israel causing their little ones and their loved ones to pass through the fire. But what you need to understand is that that is not a reference to cremation. That is a reference to living sacrifice, offering babies to Malek or to Baal, living, putting them in the fire. And God says through his prophets, that would have never entered my mind. So to use those verses to try to denounce cremation is not 
really a fit. It's not a parallel. Uh, now, am I saying that, therefore, that the biblical position is cremation? No. I would suggest that the Bible doesn't have a position. Um, if you go back to the earliest days, of course, you have the book of Genesis, uh, and you have uh, very early on the people of Israel get caught in Egypt. And, of course, you know what the Egyptians did. They embalmed. Now, this was a totally pagan society, and yet uh, some would say, well, they showed more honor for the body than anyone because they embalmed to preserve the body. And they did. But that didn't stem from some biblical conviction. Uh, the Jewish people had actually a burial process that involved two phases. They would take the bodies and they would put them usually in a tomb. And then after about a year, they would go back for the second part of the burial and gather their bones together. So they would keep putting family members in these tombs, and that's where the expression f comes from in the Old Testament. And he was gathered to his fathers. They would go gather the bones together and pull them together, and so it was sort of a two-step process. So uh, can you support from a biblical point of view that the superior way to deal with the body is uh, embalming? No. What about two-step process of gathering the bones? No. Cremation? No. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that if you wrestle through you know, the physical body, and you want to honor the body that God has given to your loved one, and so you're going to bury that body. You say, I could not cremate that person. I'm not arguing for cremation here, uh, not at all. But what you need to understand is if you don't do cremation, you do burial, eventually the person is just like cremation, basically, because disintegration takes place, and it's the same thing. So if you say, I could never reduce my loved one down to ashes, well, guess what? Time will do that if you bury the person eventually. So uh, the, the Bible does not seem to give a specific, you know, direction like this is the, this is the priority way for burial. Cremation, uh, burying in a coffin, uh, embalming, etc. They're just issues that maybe it's uh, similar to the New Testament issue of meat offered to idols. You just need to wrestle it through on your own. And if you say, there's no way I could eat meat offered to idols, then don't eat meat offered to idols. If you say, I don't have any problem eating meat offered to idols, then eat meat offered to idols. In the same way, if you say, I, I don't have any problem burying or cremation, then in your own conscience go with that. Our next question says this, um, I am curious to know why the main translations of the Bible translate the words asher and makarios, that's Hebrew and Greek, with the word blessed when the meaning of those words is happy. Just to pause right there, it's not exactly accurate that the meaning is happy. It is in the semantic range, but you're beginning the question with an assumption that really can't be defended. You can't say that those Hebrew and Greek words mean happy. They may mean happy, depending on usage. Uh, this seems like it would simply lead to a person not trusting in our translations, and it seems like many of the Bibles that are not technically translations actually end up being more accurate when it comes to the translation of these two words than the scholarly translations are. That's not really true because the scholarly translations feel like that those two words, Hebrew and Greek, have enough range of meaning that the best option is not to use the word happy, uh, because to th them, and th sure, this is a matter of opinion, that the word happy can be more trite than the word blessed or blessed. Um, so some of that can just be a difference of opinion. Are we as believers, and especially the scholars who translated scripture into English, afraid of people being truly happy? 
I guess you'd have to ask the translators if they're afraid of that, because it doesn't sound spiritual enough. Is God happy? Nowhere does the Bible say God is happy. It does say there's joy in the presence of God over one sinner who repents, but uh, it doesn't use the word happy. Uh, it seems that if God is happy, that's something you would need to establish. And certainly we as his children ought to be the happiest humans alive. Your thoughts. Well, I just gave my thoughts throughout there. Uh, I'm not opposed to the word happy because it is one of the nuances of meaning in those words. But the, the question sort of starts on the assumption that that is the meaning of the word and that for some reason translators are unwilling to go with that meaning and then therefore you've got this domino effect. And it's just not true that that's the meaning. It's sort of like uh, almost all English speakers know the, the Hebrew word for peace. It's what? Shalom. Well, if you ask a Jew Jewish person, what does shalom mean? They're not going to just say peace. We say peace. That's sort of a simplistic. But they use that word when they greet. They use that word when they leave one another. They use that word uh, to wish you well-being, fullness of life. So there's way more to the term than just saying peace. So in the same way, you can't say that the word makarios in Greek means happy. That's what it means. No, it doesn't just mean happy. It can mean happy but it's a much broader or deeper word than that. So uh, I don't have any problem with the translations that we have saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, and I wouldn't have trouble using the word happy in some occasions. But, but don't assume there's some kind of conspiracy in the technical translations that they won't use that word for some reason. And it's, you know, afraid of God being happy and people being happy and all of that. Our next question says this, uh, why couldn't the Holy Spirit be in people's hearts the same time while Jesus was on the earth? John 16, 7, Jesus said, it's, it's necessary for me to go away so the Spirit could come. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Son of God, Jesus said to him, the Father revealed this to you. The Holy Spirit functions, his function is to reveal things to us. So why? Well, I don't, you know, I was thinking through this this afternoon after I read it a few times, and I don't know of anything biblically that would say that the Holy Spirit couldn't be in people's hearts the same time while Jesus was on the earth. But I would say that he, it wasn't the plan for him to be, and it wasn't necessary for him to be. And of course, this is what Jesus said. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I've been with you, so you haven't, in a sense, needed the Holy Spirit, but I'm going away, so I'm going to send him. So I'm not sure I would say the Holy Spirit couldn't be. Uh, as I said, John 14, 17, Jesus said to his men, the Holy Spirit has been with you, but he shall be in you. So there's not really a contradiction there with the Spirit being with people during the time of the incarnation. But there clearly was a distinction and a difference when Jesus went back, sent the Spirit for permanent indwelling, for sealing, uh, etc., the ministries of the Holy Spirit that are delineated in the New Testament. Our next question says, what is the difference between a person's soul and spirit. When a Christian person dies, do both soul and spirit go to heaven? Yes. And I'll come back to the other question. What about an unbeliever? Uh, Christ yielded up his spirit. Uh, if you just do a, a study of soul and spirit in the New Testament, what you'll find is two things. One, the words are used interchangeably at times, which basically shows that the soul and spirit are not exactly the same thing, but so closely aligned that they're almost synonymous. But the second thing you'll discover, if you do a word study of soul and spirit, is that the words are sometimes used in distinction to one another. So what that probably means is that the soul and spirit are so similar that they're almost identical, but not identical. There is some distinction 
that we can't completely delineate. So in answer to your question, when a person dies, do both soul and spirit go to heaven? Yes, because the inner man goes to heaven. The non-material part of man, heart, soul, spirit, inner person, all of that goes to be at the Lord. And just like an unbeliever goes to Hades and waits resurrection. So um, fascinating study to study soul and spirit. Uh, but very close, though not exactly identical, but almost impossible to delineate. Uh, next question says this, I still don't understand the great white throne judgment. I have kept a clean line between the Lord and myself, so what will I be judged for? And the answer is this, if you are a believer, you will not be judged for anything at the great white throne because you won't even be at the great white throne. The great white throne judgment is different than the sheep and goat judgment described in Matthew 25. It's different than the judgment seat of Christ. It is a judgment of all the lost of all the ages. All the unbelievers of all times will be at the great white throne. Only unbelievers will be there. So if you are a believer in Christ, you're a Christian, your sins are forgiven. John 5.24, Jesus said, uh, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in him who sent me, uh, hears my word and believes in him who sent me, has eternal life and has already passed from death into life and shall never come into judgment. And it's referring specifically to the great white throne judgment. You will not be at the great white throne if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, we will have our lives evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, but that's not a judgment for punishment, a judgment for sin. It's a judgment for rewards. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. We have two more questions here. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Here's where Paul, talking about the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, he says it will be in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, we shall be changed. And the question is, what is the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15, 22? Uh, is it lined up with 1 Thessalonians 4, 16? And I would say yes. Uh, do those who hold to a mid-trib rapture connect this trumpet with the seventh trumpet judgment of Revelation eleven fifteen? Yes, they do. I don't think they should, but they do. That's the connection they make. Seems like the rapture and the rewarding of the saints could coincide with this trumpet, though not that I believe that, though. Could you please help me sort through these passages? Yes, you're correct. It is one of the pieces of evidence that people use for a mid-trib view. The biggest problem with it is that the trumpet mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians 4 is a trumpet of summoning the people of God. Trumpets were used throughout the Old Testament to summon or gather the people of God. That's clearly the way it's used in 1 Corinthians 15. It's clearly the way it's used in 1 Thessalonians 4. But in Revelation, the seventh trumpet is not a trumpet of summoning. All of those trumpets are trumpets of judgment. So you're almost mixing metaphors there. It's, it's just a reminder that we need to be careful and not assume that every time the Bible uses the same metaphor, it's using it the same way. For example, I know some people say, well, every time the Bible talks about leaven, it's referring to evil. And you can't prove that. No, you, you have to try to prove that if you're going to make that assertion. Or every time the symbol of a, 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 a lion is used, it's Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion and the lamb. What about 1 Peter 5? Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. See, so every time the Bible uses a metaphor, don't assume it's meaning the same thing. Just because there's a trumpet in Revelation and a trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, there's no reason to make the connection, especially when they're talking about two completely different things. A trumpet of gathering the people of God is one, and trumpets of judgment the other. So it's mixing things that, that don't mix. 
All right, the last question uh, on Revelation. That's an appropriate place to end the night. Revelation chapter 21, um, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So the question is, why is the New Jerusalem called the bride of the Lamb in Revelation 21.9? How does this connect with the church being called the Lamb's wife? And I'm glad you asked that because I personally believe that is the connection. Uh, you know as well as I do that uh, a city is not buildings, a city is people. Uh, and so a city often gets its description from its inhabitants. If a city is full of wicked people, we call it a wicked city. If a city is characterized by in industrial work, we call it an industrial city. What is uh, Pittsburgh called? The steel city. Why? Because every building is made of steel? No, because it's, they manufacture steel. Everyone, or for historically, that's what was done there. Uh, so if, uh, if a city has a lot of colleges and universities, it's called an educational city. Well, why is this called a bride city? Because it's for the bride. It's for the bride of Christ. The bride is, is there. And remember, the book of Revelation was written to the church, the bride of Christ, and it's written to be an encouragement to be overcomers. And so, of course, you close by showing the internal, eternal uh, uh, habiting place of the people of God, of the church. So the eternal city is not only the home of the bride, it is the bride. The city is not building its, its people. However, I think we need to be careful not to equate the two and say the city is merely a description of God's redeemed people. I say that because in the early verses of chapter 22, the servants of God inhabit the city as entities separate from the city itself. So that's why I don't believe that the city is purely symbolic of God's redeemed people, though that's a part of it. I think it's a literal city where God's people will dwell, the church, the bride of Christ, and it's called the bride because it is the bride city. And what an encouragement to the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb, to know that this is the place that Jesus talked about in John 14 when, when he was clearly using marriage language, saying, I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Every Jew who knew their marriage customs knew immediately that's marriage language. The bridegroom goes away to prepare a place, and he comes to get his bride and take him as, take the bride to be his wife in that place he's prepared. And that's what's written all over Revelation 21 and 22. All right, great questions uh, this month. Thank you for turning those in. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer and be dismissed. Father, thank you for another wonderful Lord's Day as we've been able to gather here this morning, this evening, to fellowship with your people, to encourage one another, pray for one another, support one another, uh, contemplate your word, bring our burdens to you, bring our joys to you, uh, bring our requests to you. We are so grateful. Thank you for the specialness of this day, that it was on the first day of the, way, first day of the week when our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. And this is another reminder today that we serve a risen Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.